0: Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman, and I I hope I don't overwhelm today's guest because I underlined so many sections of her book that we're clearly not going to get to it all. But anyway, Elaine Castillo, named one of 30 of the planet's most exciting young people by the Financial Times, was born and raised in the Bay Area. Her debut novel, America is Not the Heart, was a finalist for numerous prizes, including the L. Big Book Award, the Center for Fiction Prize, and the Aspen Words Literary Prize. Her new collection is called How to Read Now. And I truly barely know where to start. (laughs) So hi, (laughs) Elaine.
1: Hi, that's a really very, very kind introduction. Thank you. It's a real (laughs) joy
0: to be here. Um, I I do think we should start with, your definition for what reading is in the context of your book, because you do discuss so many books and you go so deep and do close line readings, but that is not the only thing you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it really, it, that came out of my, my
1: formation as a reader, which was ultimately mixed, I think. You know, like I talk about in the book, how my, you know, my father was a huge reader but he also came, I mean, my parents, as, as I say in the book, my parents had a mixed class marriage. You know, my dad came from a kind of upper middle class family in the Philippines and in Ilocos. And, you know, he was very comfortable with literature, with reading. He was a big reader. He passed that down to me. My mom, on the other hand, grew up in uh, rural poverty and her hold on not just English, but, you know, even Tagalog, because Tagalog is not, though it's the lingua franca of the Philippines, it's not her. Mm-hmm. Uh, primary language. So, you know, even, you know, reading things in Tagalog, it would be daunting for my mom sometimes. So, you know, I I think I, I grew up really understanding that while I loved being a reader, that that gift was also one that was class inflected. So, and, and I think because of that, you know, I also had, I mean, movies, TV shows, I mean, I definitely grew up, I'm I mean, I, I think anyone who grew up in the 90s, I, there's such, there's such a huge 90s revival on every, absolutely every level fashion TV, yes, yes. Uh, movies, and I'm absolutely part of that, have zero resistance to it. <laughs> so, I mean, I, you know, I, I grew up in the kind of golden era of 90s television also, especially 90s Black television and 90s anime, uh, Black American television. So, you know, I think I grew up uh, voracious in a lot of ways and didn't, and because, you know, I think because my father was such a huge reader, but he wasn't, you know, he was, well, in, in the life that I knew him, he was a security guard in his previous life. He was a surgeon. Um, you know, he didn't have any sort of schooling that, you know, he didn't have an English degree. He hadn't done any kind of academic, um, he had no sort of academic relationship to reading. It was really this kind of idiosyncratic highly personal relationship to reading and because of that that's what I got also so it was just sort of well read a bunch of stuff there's no real boundaries between them you could read sort of Plato and then Babysitter's Club in the same week and there was nothing in wrong with high. that and, and in junior high yeah I got into I got into trouble I remember in junior high because I I think I, I turned in some they were like oh do your book report and I think I did it on a well, now this is going to sound like a real humble brag. <laughs> <laughs> no, you have to do it now. <laughs> now I have to just lean into it and do a full brag. <laughs> I think it was Plato's Symposium, and then I got it back, uh, and it was like an F, and it was like, well, you clearly didn't read this. I'm like, oh, okay, that's, that's how it goes. So then sometimes, oh, but then that, oh, that's so funny. I literally just had like, a flashback to it. I, at that point, I started making up books that I thought my teachers would believe that I read, I just I literally just remember I have not thought about this for 20 years. This is breaking news, <laughs> or not more than 20 years, 30 years. I I yeah, God, I used to start making up like YA or like children's novels, like babysitters clubs type stuff. I remember there was like a detective murder mystery kind of kids book That's that I fun. like made up <laughs> and was like, Yeah, I read this. And they were like, A, hey, amazing. <laughs> they were like, Great, great description of this, this youth, youth this youth appropriate book. Maybe that should have probably been the first hint that I was a writer.
0: <laughs> I have not I thought about that. that literally thirty years. That's amazing. Um, and so when we take in all of this culture, everything that we're taking in is political in some way. Yeah. Sure. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. I think so. I mean, I mean, it's political whether or not you consider it so and i would say even more so if you don't consider it so if you have the if you have the well i don't know if i don't think free i mean i argue that freedom is not the right word the privilege but also the curse to not have to you know think about politics or live in a politicized body or you know to not think that only watching you know Beverly Hills 90210 and thinking that's California is political I mean I watched those shows and thought they were science fiction I was like I don't know I have never seen this California I don't know what y'all are talking about Um, so yeah absolutely and I think you know I, I I was lucky enough that books were introduced to me in a way that wasn't that was so generous and that wasn't gatekeeping and that wasn't you know there I mean what what gates would we have kept so there was such a it was such a a freewheeling practice of it. And so when I encountered reading practices that weren't like that, that were gatekeeping, you know, it was a real shock to the system.
0: This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life little wing now streaming exclusively on paramount plus head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free rated pg-13 dreaming of a better sleep tossing and turning is not your destiny and ollie is here to help ollie invites you to sink into sweet sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness more than just melatonin Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. Yeah, and you talk in um, the first section about, of course, the publishing industry has traditionally been mostly white. Um, we, the the white reader is the person who is on a publishing person's mind for the most part when, when they're envisioning an audience. Um, I have to say, I was at the HarperCollins strike yesterday. Oh, right. I was just reading about this, yeah. The the assistants are demanding living wages, how dare them. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, how shocking. <laughs> I know, and... Um, a whole variety of other things, and I, I went to look at what the number one best-selling book is in America, um, in the nonfiction category in the Times, and it's a book that that basically says we should all continue to teach our children Greek or Latin instead of teaching them to question or analyze their history. <laughs> And I I was like, oh, Elaine. (laughs) You might have (laughs) something to to say about that.
1: Uh, Well, I mean, first of all, obviously, power and solidarity to all the strikers at Harper Collins. Yeah, you know, I mean, and also, I mean, this is relevant to my interests, not just as a newbie nonfiction writer, but also, you know, as someone, I talk about it a little bit in the book, as someone who was a would-be classicist or wanted to be a classicist for a really long time and who grew up on... Greek myth I definitely at some point was like I'm going to be the Panayan Carson this is this is happening Eros the Bittersweet Autobiography of Red it's done wrap it up let's go and so I think you know I I have no issue with teaching Greek or Latin as someone who literally started college learning Greek and Latin and who grew up on Greek mythology but I think you know that that is only one part of the argument it's saying we're teaching greek and latin with the understanding that this is the correct way to teach western civilization to the people who are going to grow up in western civilization uh, or we're teaching these specific this specific narrow set of canon in this specific way in order to produce these very specific type of citizens you know i think i think about it a lot when you, you think about how you know in the in the kind of 18th century, I mean, the kind of peak colonial sort of Enlightenment era, the approach to, um, for example, translating cl- translating classics like the Odyssey, which you know I talk about a little bit in yeah. the last essay about you know thinking about what the colonial era translations of the Odyssey say about that translator's you know vision of the world, you know, the there was this there's this huge also. Agenda, and it is a political agenda to portray the Greeks, to portray uh, the Western classics as being this precursor, so that uh, precursor to Western civilization and to a specific idea of Western civilization as Aryan, as white, as civilized, as rational. I mean, that's why, you know, the kind of German archaeologists and classicists at the time, people like Heinrich uh, Schneemann, who, you know, basically, I mean, all the people who stole everything and put it in the British Museum, basically. you know, they they were really obsessed with the idea that all of these statues were white, and then, and that really, that really allowed them to perpetuate these ideas about purity, about whiteness, about rationality, about a specific type of beauty. Completely leaving out the fact that obviously all of those statues are white because of age at the time. I mean, it's you know, carbon dating has shown that all of those statues were painted a riot of colors. That those, you know, that that the way Greek temples or the way that these these sites of worship and of religion and of culture looked like were very different from the image that was then sold to a specific enlightenment audience and, and and the audiences thereafter so I think that's some I mean that's you know something to think about when you think about well why are people pushing a specific set of authors is it because they just think those authors are because I love Homer I love Herodotus I love reading Horace you know Horace I mean I, I talk about Horace one of his Latin poet Horace, who has one of my favorite poems of all time. I love reading him. But how are we reading him and for what purpose and to to serve what agenda?
0: Yeah. Um, And it it does seem like this particular book, it calls out um, the books that school children uh, may or may not be studying these days. And um, it, it goes very much along with the books the conservatives are trying to ban from school libraries. You talk a lot in the book about free speech arguments to justify appropriation. And then when free speech is actually threatened, <laughs> we're, we're being told to, to, we should ignore it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, free
1: speech. I mean, like, like white fragility. Like, um, you know, all, all of these these are things that are so easily weaponized. It's very easy for someone who has tenure to weaponize free speech to protect them from being criticized by a freelance journalist of color for their racism or their transphobia. Or, you know, it's very we we have uh, our our hold on free speech is selective <laughs> to, say the, to, to say the least. I mean, also, you know, I don't, I just, I think part of that essay that's ta- that talks a little bit about free speech and the way that it's employed and instrumentalized essentially to protect people from critique. <laughs> I mean, just as something as very simple, simple I, to protect something as engagement, which I mean, as far as I can see it is that's what's supposed to happen in a democratic forum. <laughs> where the, where free speech supposedly exists um, the way that that's in you know it, it's really just employed as a kind of aegis it's employed as a kind of a protective shield but that's why i'm not that i'm not i'm not that interested in <laughs> this is a, what, what a soundbite i'm not that interested in freedom at least i'm not that interested in the kind of i mean the, the that essay talks about this that kind of essentialist Amer- the, the idea of american freedom as its exists as an inheritor to the kind of manifest destiny sort of settler colonial vision of freedom into individualism ruggedness you know the freedom to do what one wants you know john wayne style to you know dip into the joan didion essay yes and i i think i am i'm much more interested in interconnection in inheritness in indebtedness in the places that we're not free where we are delimited, where we are beholden to each other, where um, those difficult places, those those difficult interstices, that seems to me much more a reflection of, you know, what it is to actually live than, you know, putting forth this idea that artistic freedom is the end-all and be-all. I'm really much more interested in artistic vulnerability, reliance, interconnection, and
0: um, yeah, yeah, indebtedness. and. And I do think there's, there's, you talk about how there's an incurious market for specific <laughs> kinds of books. And what a nice way to imagine what you're arguing for, to just like, to think, oh, just be more curious about the people <laughs> around
1: you. There's nothing in me that will I mean, as, as, <laughs> as strident or as, um, <laughs> take no prisoners I think someone recently said that as, as the book can be I you know there's no there's nothing in me that ever wants to talk down to a readership or, or to believe that you know we're not capable of better when I you know I, it's because I still believe in reading for my sins I mean it's oh, Jesus apparently I still do you know grudging optimistic <laughs> Virgo I guess <laughs> I love believes, that. In, believes in things and hates it. <laughs> yeah, you know, I still I I, I I do still believe in what we're capable of as readers.
0: And you talk about the idea of the unexpected reader. Tell me a little bit about realizing, I guess, mm. that that you might be the unexpected reader. Yeah,
1: I think I just started thinking about it a little bit just because it just became so you know, going back to this thing that we were saying about you know, writers being, or writers or intellectuals or scholars, thinkers being up in arms at the idea of, you know, uh, you know, a, a white feminist writer being up in arms about a, you know, feminist of color, making some critique of her work or trans readers, you know, talking about J.K. Rowling's transphobia, you know, the, the, the kind of shock of, of, of not being read as a sycophant, I suppose, the kind of shock, the, the idea of, you know, that writers or that, you know, that anyone would be shocked that someone doesn't read them the way they expect themselves to be read and the way they indeed have always, you know, been allowed to exist in the books they read as readers. And I was just thinking about that because someone was, who was it that was talking to me? We were talking about, I think it was one of these very sort of (laughs) tiresome conversations about sort of separating the art and the artist. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think there, they were just saying something like yeah but like if we do that then sort of every book might you know you it'll it'll be difficult to how, how are you going to read books because it'll be difficult to it, it it just complicates them and you'll have to feel uncomfortable with every book that you read is that is that something that you're experiencing for the first time at the big age of you know what 35 i just i just i'm confused just because the, you know you know, if I, as a, as a kid, if I'm reading <laughs> Plato Symposium or George Eliot, or, you know, any of the readers that i read and and loved, or Greek myth, frankly, you know, I, I was an interloper in all of those worlds. There was no, you know, there was no expectation that any of those books were ever going to hold my hand through the references that they made through the world that they made. Certainly not, you know, if I, there was, I mean, that feeling was never more so apparent when I would read books or watch television shows where then someone would mention like a, that would be a Filipino character, but you know, like could say his diary of a bad year that I mentioned in the essay, or I remember there was a- (laughs) Yes. No, or there was a absolutely fabulous episode. I remember that, you know, that British comedy show, Ab Fab. Yeah, there was a, there was an episode. I remember I really liked that. They used to show it on PBS. And I remember I showed it, I was going to show an episode to a friend of mine And that the episode that I showed happened to be the episode where I think uh, one of them, let's say Edwina, one of them just starts, it just makes a like real sort of passing ridiculing comment about like Filipino houseboys. And my friend was Filipino and she was like, oh, this is the show you're introducing me to. And I remember we were like 12 or 13 and she like gave middle fingers up to the show. She was like, fuck you. I was like, oh, wow, we're
0: 13 and I fucked up.
1: (laughs) I didn't know. You know, and that's, then the flip side right. of
0: that, which you talk about in the book, is that when you wrote your first novel, you didn't always offer translations.
1: No, no, and I I don't see I don't see why I would or should or translations or glossaries. I think I mean not that I have. Um, problems necessarily with translations or glossaries. I just have problems with translations and glossaries when they're assumed to be the purview only of writers of color or of immigrant writers or writers who are writing about non-English spaces, countries, cultures, because that's the assumption that there are certain writers that are obligated to provide safari trips and that other writers and artists aren't. You know, I was just thinking about this recently because This is the very first time that I'm part of a zeitgeist. I am also watching the bear with everyone else. (laughs) Normally I'm late to everything. Literally. I just started watching the Americans, which, you know, people in my life are fucking horrified. I'm like, this show is amazing. They're like, (laughs) please please join a society and uh, just watched succession recently also, but I was watching the bear and, you know, I, I really enjoyed it. And one of the things that I really loved about it is that it, throws people into a world with no translation it's like Mm -hmm. loads of chef dialogue I mean loads of chef jargon loads of you know Chicago stuff I don't know anything about it and yet you're thrown in some things are translated in context some things aren't and you just gotta run with it I mean you just have to you know sink or swim and hopefully swim and I think the the you know incredible sorry (laughs) this this stuff suddenly started uh transcribing my words along um and i you know i I love that about the show i love the the pace of it the unapologetic the the fact that it does not translate its world to anyone, but then at the same time, I think, well, I haven't seen any uh any reviews talk about, oh, I wish this show had translation and glossaries because it was, you know, really difficult to understand. It was more, like, oh, it's so fast paced. Everyone is very into the main character. And, you know, all of that. So I think that's 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 something that is curious to me. That's like, okay, well, this is a show that's very much speaking its own language, that very much starts off, this is the specific dialect of this show, you know, join in or not. And yet the I you know I, I think that if there was a sh- you know I, I mean it's funny because I was watching it and I was like oh wow <laughs> I think I've been very resistant to well not resistant but i was like well if my first novel was ever adapted that's the spirit that I would the, the spirit of that show I was like oh this is the first time I've ever seen a show where I thought like yeah like that just because of that that uh, resistance to translation um, resistance to translating itself so that's, you know, it's something that I think about when I think about, well, who who doesn't have to provide glossaries and translations? Because I don't know. I mean, if you read, if you read, I mean, I love Victor Hugo because I freaking go on like three page long digressions about him and the work cited. But, you know, if you don't know anything about English aristocracy or French aristocracy or anything for that matter, it's like, you know, he's not providing glossaries for you. I think it's much more fun. like I actually think we should reclaim glossaries. I think it would be great to do glossaries. But for. Like cultural stuff not for like language stuff but like if people could just explain i don't know like astrology
0: that's a whole book in itself stuff like that i love that and i also find that like if i'm reading a book about a culture i'm not familiar with The cool thing about reading these days is usually my phone is right with me too. (laughs) And uh, you're you're not reading, looking up a word you're curious about. Yeah,
1: exactly, exactly. Yeah, and there's also just no shame in pockets of uncertainty and and unknowledge, knowledge that you know things that are maybe felt or seen or heard but aren't understood. I mean, that's you know, I, I think a lot of I think a lot of us it's easy to forget that a lot of reading happens like that a lot of reading happens it doesn't you know reading is not sort of you know plug it in and download it and then I've, I've got everything and then you know 100 percent downloaded mm-hmm. you know it's it's a much more piecemeal personal experience I mean that I can read one book and I know that a friend who's read the same book won't have read the same book as me we'll just sure. pick up on different things you know we'll, we'll miss different things so that's also just part of reading as well yeah
0: um I love that. So in the same chapter that opens another day, another shit show involving JK Rowling. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really staid book, you know, it's a really. Uh... <laughs> so you do this wonderful deep dive into the Watchmen, which we are clearly not going to get around to, but what I did want to talk about, again, especially today, especially the past few years, um, is, is The Handmaid's Tale. Oh, and and the way that that book has become a stand in for Mm. so many problems that existed for so long
1: outside the
0: scope of Canadians.
1: I, I haven't I haven't watched the show, actually. I mean, we're going back to me being behind on many things. Listen, I just started The Americans, so you can't <laughs> expect <laughs> I am not a contemporary, I'm not someone, I'm not a contemporary soul. <laughs> but um, yeah, you know, I was thinking a little bit, I mean, I think The Handmaid's Tale is one of the books that I mentioned just when I think about um, just a certain, you know, uh, sci-fi fantasy books that Uh, describe a a kind of utopia or or not utopia (laughs) well a utopia for some actually that's not true yeah I think a utopia for some a utopia for a very specific political class Mm -hmm. um, and a dystopia for everyone else Um, you know like Margaret Abbott or like x-men or like um, you know some of the the sci-fi sci-fi fantasy hunger games hunger game hunger games that you know that describe dystopia but within the confines of the universe the actual people are usually left kind of raceless, placeless, you know it's it, it's it sort of uproots uh, or, or puts them in a kind of no place despite you know the the authors usually copying in, in interviews and post interviews uh, about those works that they were inspired by you know Margaret Atwood talks about being inspired by the you know disappearance um, under the Argentinian junta and and the Marco the regime of Ferdinand Marcos, also very relevant considering the recent Philippines election. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think, you know, what I'm thinking about is how our, how the sci-fi fantasy imagination is based entirely on essentially uh, taking, the histories and the realities lived largely by marginalized communities and largely communities of color and transposing them onto raceless, which is to say, in, you know, our, in, 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 a, in, a, in a cultural industry that assumes that neutral is white, transposes them into white bodies, white actors, white characters, um, and divests those histories of, you know, their very their very specific contexts in a way that then Ultimately produces the impression that, well, it's people who I guess look like who's the main actress in *In the Handmaid's Tale*. In yeah. See, I don't I haven't watched it, but you know um, I mean. that it's you know that um, that it's white characters, white bodies, white communities that are under siege, um, and and you know that I mean that's also part of the vagaries of Hollywood casting and Hollywood uh, and. and publishing industry as well, the idea that, well, stories about dystopia or stories about marginalization are only palatable if the bodies are sympathetic and the only bodies that we find sympathetic really happen to be white bodies. Um, so there's that, you know, I think uh, that I, I, I want to think more about that just because, you know, I, I really grew up on sci-fi fantasy. I really loved, uh, I loved X-Men. I loved, yeah. uh uh, i mean i i i watched the hunger games you know i sent those books to (laughs) my brother um a difficult time in his life and you know so i i'm i I don't write about uh, sci-fi fantasy as as an outsider i write about him as someone who is very deeply invested and who came up on those stories who came up on x-men and who you know i came up on rogue so then when you rogue from x-men so then when you read that the original artist or writer wanted Rogue to look like Grace Jones, but the artist didn't know what Grace Jones looked like. That <laughs> that hits different too. Sure, sure hits too. different. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, you know, so I think there's there's that. I mean, I think I think understanding how our contemporary sort of white authored sci-fi fantasy functions in in a society helps us to understand then why there's such a reactionary wave within sci-fi fantasy fandom, why there's such militant resistance to, you know, quote unquote, social justice warriors clamoring for something as basic as, you know, superheroes of color or pay equity or more, you know, authors of color and more characters of color in, um, in, in sci-fi fantasy worlds. Not, and I don't find that any, I mean, you know, I think the last essay or no, the second to last essay, makes very clear that I have a lot of suspicions <laughs> suspicions and misgivings around representation matters art, quote unquote, and and the, the paucity of representation matters art and the paucity of just thinking, well, we'll throw
0: some black and Asian characters
1: into the Star quote Wars you universe. I'm gonna you yourself. Okay.
0: <laughs> Cause this is a line that really stuck out for me. No one wants your sheen hall <laughs> of diverse characters capitalized. <laughs> I know this is chef's kiss. <laughs> you know, I really thought
1: that I should just go gently and <laughs> really beat around the bush about how I think about <laughs> characters and representation. <laughs> oh yeah, yes, I did say no one wants your she in hall of diverse characters, but frankly, no one wants your she in hall of diverse characters, fam. Like, <laughs> but you know, that's. Thinking that that's enough. I think that that's that's. Uh, I've, I've probably started spiraling, but that that's yeah. that that's more or less what sort of inspired me thinking about yeah books like The Handmaid's
0: Tale. And... I would like to talk a little bit more about Joan Didion. You are you devote a lot of time uh, <laughs> <laughs> for her, and she's someone I like, and I yeah. um, fully get that criticism. <laughs> Um, especially about her being, um, the voice on yeah. California, because yeah. she's, yeah. her family has been there for generations. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's, so that's, that's,
1: I think the crux of most of what I want to talk about there. It's not really, you know, I, I, there's a lot of don't, 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 jidian. well, okay. Uh, so. <laughs> Joan Didion's writing that I also appreciate. I mean it's very similar to Austin. You know, when I when I yeah. critiqued the reception, you know, in the one of the early essays when I talk about Austin, I really love Austin. And if we start talking about the persuasion adaptation, we will be here for three hours. Oh, yeah. So let me just move past that. <laughs> let me just move past that. Um, you know, I, I I really love and have a lot of affection for Austin, especially persuasion. But what I'm interested in critiquing is how the, the kind of culture Cultural industry around her that's resistant to thinking about Austin's historical context or, the, you know, abolition around her time or what other writers were thinking about or that you know that it's somehow anachronistic to talk about race in connection to Austin or the slave trade in connection to Austin or, you know, that that somehow diminishes her legacy, and I think it, there's a similar um, impulse with thinking about Joan Didion. It's not really Joan Didion's uh, writing per se. Although I'm not, uh, <laughs> it would come as a surprise to say I'm not a huge, <laughs> but it's not her writing per se. But it, it for me it really it is the fact that she is um, understood or or you know um, really trumpeted as this kind of the preeminent voice of California. And I, I for me it's important to think about well why that is. You know, what, what is the in investment in making her voice the voice of California? What is that voice actually saying? And so, what is it producing culturally when we say a voice like this is the voice of California? What images of California, what beliefs about California are we upholding by saying, well, okay, someone who is a fifth generation Californian being landed gentry? As, you know, one of the quotes about Didion talks about what does that actually mean within a settler colonial history of. California you know what what are the what what are the visions of California that are being um, upheld and what are the visions of California that are being erased and obscured
0: hey it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline ready to go to your happy place for a happy price well why didn't you say so just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels so whether it's cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas City go Kevin or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda you never have to miss a trip ever again so download the Priceline app today Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price priceline. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. I'm wondering, can you talk a little bit about that, please? Because I think it's a good. um, Let's talk about something that you really love. Well, I think I try. I mean, knowing
1: that I, (laughs) knowing that my my constitution is one that some might call combative, (laughs) or you know, uh, or uh, grim. grim hag adjacent
0: uh i think it's also
1: really important for me you know so much of this book is also really fundamentally based in love yeah and the, and the books that i love and the art that i love in and the in and the, the the writing and the the art that's the films, the tv shows that have yeah. have sparked real love in me that have, have you know given me life um to put it very simply so i think you know i I think that's that's why I wanted to talk about uh, Tommy Pico in that essay is not just because well, I think because you know, if I if I'm going to essentially critique a California icon, I'm not really interested in the business of just you know a hack job for a hack job or tearing someone down. I I'm interested in giving it when I can. And, and I can't always, you know. I don't think. Um, I think sometimes writers. Of, I was going to say interested in giving alternatives, or interested in in in. Although I, I, I think writers of color are also often asked to for, give alternatives. This is for alternative the I mean. Yeah, 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 exactly. But I think for me, it's really just because there is California writing that I love, that I that I feel alive to, that I I, I think does, you know. That that doesn't willfully obscure whole swathes or swaths of of California history and California life and that is honest and funny and sharp and you know I think think the first time I read a Tommy Pico poem it might have been nature poem I can't I can't remember if it was a nature poem or if it was IRL I think I was on the plane and you know you know if you're on if you read on a read or watch movies on the plane I think it's the cabin pressure but if you read or watch movies on the plane, you're sobbing. That's just, it's, that's just what's happening. So that's where I was at. But, you know, it was also, it is also some of my favorite California writing. I think he's um, yeah, magnificent, the, how he writes about California and that, that combination of like bathos, but also writing, you know, he's fundamentally as a kind of, as, as a contemporary native Californian poet writing about nature, I mean, to write a nature poem, given the history of how, you know, nature is uh, understood, manipulated, weaponized in a settler colonial uh, context. It's so galvanizing, I think. It's so, um, and so personal. So the idea, and, and and it's not a reclamation, I think, which is what I think is really What's what's the most sort of um, enriching is that it doesn't step into the kind of easy political mode of, well, not easy political mode, but the kind of easier modes of being, well, I'm reappropriating the genre for right. myself. Like, you know, I'm going to reappropriate the Western and, you know, John Wayne's Filipino this time. Okay, well, does that do anything about the power dynamics that are inherent in the Western or similar colonial or you just want to be the one holding the gun this time, you know, so that he has that wonderful line that reclamation requires social capital and I, I just love that I think it's you know how, how do we how do we think about these histories in ways that don't then ultimately end by wanting to put ourselves at the top of the the, the pyramid so that's you know and it's also just it's just so fucking good
0: it's so fucking good and funny it's so fucking good. it's, so, he's, it's, it's just so funny and and your book is very funny so oh, uh thank you. <laughs> um shout out to Sheehan for that sponsorship <laughs> <I'm just kidding. laughs> um, I can keep going but I'm gonna I'm happy um, to
1: keep going it's fun
0: but you know I and, yeah <laughs> stay around a half hour yeah um, but but, but this is great yeah and and I have to walk the dog um oh. before we go though please recommend some books for us Oh well, I mean, and this book really is a kind of glorified reading list in a, in a way. Sure so I mean,
1: all of all of the books that are in it: Jamaica Kincaid's Lucy, Tommy Pico's uh, Everything, Tommy Pico's Nature Poem IRL, um, John Berger, uh, John Berger's To the Wedding, um, and Lilac and Flag. I really love. I love his fiction. I recently I've been reading. Um, I mean, I I think like most writers, especially if you're working on a novel, what you're <laughs> reading is always very. Re- weird, you're just now reading the same thing as other people. But I have read um, A Common Normal Heart by Chelsea T. Hicks, a Native Californian writer. I think she's touring right now. I, I uh, blurb that book, and it's great. I mean, I'm always really impressed by people who are short form writers because it's a collection of short stories, uh, just because I my brain doesn't function <laughs> in the in the short form at all. Um, so, I mean, it's a great collection of, of contemporary Native short stories about like the Osage diaspora and that's fantastic um and I've been reading Shark Dialogues by Keanu Davenport she's a Hawaiian writer um yeah so a weird bunch of things but there's there's lots more books uh,
0: in in the actual book I love it and you have a really great um what do you call it sorry it's a, a work cited but it's oh a, yeah It goes pretty deep, and i love how you call it kind of a literary land acknowledgement
1: i i i hope so i hope it it can function as that yeah the work cited i really went ham i was like (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's a work cited y'all can't edit me so i'm going to talk about literally every single book on the planet perfect i I think some at some point people were like do you need this digression on victor hugo and spencer (laughs) and
0: sally hawkins in persuasion i was like yeah absolutely I do. For sure. (laughs) (laughs) Aline, thank you so much. The book is How to Read Now. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This was absolutely a joy. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.